They got you last time, but it won't be the same next time. It's the reason you train like you do. The reason why you push harder, go further, and stay longer. You know they're out there. They're studying you just as you're studying them. You know their tendencies. They know your flaws. You know their moves and still have trouble stopping them. But next time will be different. Are you ready to face your adversary? Let's talk about it on this episode of A Word with Anthony Walker. Adversary. Noun. One's opponent in a contest, conflict, or dispute. For most, college is a time that we can stretch and expand our minds. My college experience was no different. One class that I will never forget is the Bible class I took on Job. This class helped to shape my theology, philosophy, and psychology. Truly, it was a life-changing class. One of the assignments that I was given in this class involved really understanding the concept of an adversary. It sounds simple enough, but I was wrong. Most people associate an adversary with an enemy. Perhaps in few instances, an adversary can be an enemy. But an adversary is just an opponent or one that goes against. In its etymology, it's a compound word of ad, which means toward, and versus, which means against. Thus, an adversary is one that is against, or one that opposes your direction. As I dug into the assignment, my mind went into the area of sports. The sports world is filled with adversaries and opponents. In the late 1970s and 80s, it was all about bird and magic. No, I'm not talking about an illusionist or magic show. I'm talking about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. These two men were phenomenal basketball talents that came along at just the right time. The twin towers of Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell had retired from NBA basketball and basketball itself had taken a lull. But Bird and Magic would immediately change the dynamic and ignite the sports world again. Both came from hardworking blue-collar families. They competed against one another in college. Both were clear leaders of their teams. Those who followed their games, I tell you, it was something to behold. They were both close to the same size, both fierce competitors, both highly skilled. It would come to a head in the 79 NCAA championship game. And while Magic's Michigan State won, they would meet again. Both were drafted to major NBA teams, Bird to the Celtics and Magic to the Lakers. The Celtics and the Lakers were already a feuding rivalry and now adding more fuel to the fire with Bird and Magic. 
Just think, they were rivals in college, rivals in the NBA, and drafted to rival teams. Their first season was one for the legends. Bird wins Rookie of the Year. Magic thought he deserved Rookie of the Year, but ended up winning the championship and finals MVP. And over the next decade, either the Celtics or the Lakers were in the finals, and only once did another team win that wasn't the Celtics or the Lakers. To hear Larry Bird and Magic Johnson talk about those years, they describe how they needed each other. They talk about the losses and how it bothered them. They talk about how it made them train harder. If one had a good game, the other would try to have better stats, even if they weren't playing each other's teams. This is the idea of an adversary, one that opposes you, and in order to win, you have to develop or become better to overcome their opposition. And as fans of the sport, we've got a whole lot of great legendary basketball. I'm sure both would describe the other as the adversary. However, there's another sports story that is almost a perfect picture and definition of an adversary. If you're a fan of the sport of boxing, the story of boxing wouldn't be complete without these two names. Tyson Douglas? No, bigger than that. Mayweather Pacquiao? <laughs> Way bigger than that. Ali Frazier? Yes. And for the purposes of this podcast, in particular, Joe Frazier. The story of Muhammad Ali couldn't be told without talking about Joe Frazier. Now, Ali has a story that got even better and more interesting when Joe Frazier came along. Muhammad Ali took boxing by storm. He had a style that was unlike most other boxers. Even in his early fights, he claimed he was the greatest. He was taller than most, which gave him a long reach as well as a commanding stance. He was unusually fast for a heavyweight boxer. He also had great endurance, which was seldom seen in the heavyweight ranks. With all of those attributes, he ran through boxers like a runaway train. But that would come to a screeching halt on March 8, 1971, in a fight deemed the fight of the century. A few years before this fight, Ali was stripped of his titles after losing his fight license because he was found guilty of draft evasion. During this time, Joe Frazier was coming up the ranks as a hammer-hitting boxer. Joe and Ali were friendly during this time and even jokingly referred to each other as champ, since technically Ali was still undefeated when his titles were stripped. The Supreme Court would later overturn his conviction and Ali regained his license and was able to fight. In this unique situation, the fight of the century would be between two undefeated heavyweights. In the months before the fight, Ali began his usual taunts, but they were way more personal and deeper than before. 
He painted Joe not only as a bad boxer, but also made fun of his appearance, calling him ugly. Ali would often taunt his opponents in the media to better sell the fight. He was braggadocious and arrogant. Time after time, he would win. And time after time, the legend would grow bigger and bigger. Joe, on the other hand, let his fist do the talking. He wasn't flashy or arrogant. And on the night of this fight between Ali and Frazier, Ali took the taunt game to the next level by writing a check that his boxing skills would have to cash. He said, if Joe wins, I will crawl on the floor and point up to Joe and declare, you are the greatest. The fight waged on and on, and Joe's determination grew. It was obvious that this was a different type of fight for Ali. Ali even got knocked down. I mean, slipped, as the announcer said in the 11th round. He got back up, but wasn't all the way there. After 15 rounds and a unanimous decision, Frazier was declared the winner. And although he was declared winner to the world's eye, he wasn't really the champion. It was really viewed more as Ali's loss than Frazier's win. The world still viewed Ali as the greater boxer. This angered Frazier and would stick with him for a while. He would go on and fight again, but lose to another up-and-coming boxer named George Foreman. But Ali, on the other hand, still gathering himself after dealing with that loss and dealing with his new adversary, he studied the Foreman-Frazier fight. He noticed that George Foreman was all punch and no pause. He would use this to his advantage. In his route back to Frazier, Ali took on Foreman in the fight called The Rumble in the Jungle. This fight was where Ali would use his technical study to easily beat Foreman. Since Foreman was all punch, Ali would lean on the ropes and allow Foreman to punch with all he had, while Ali was using the lax ropes. Foreman's punches were all for naught. After six rounds of this rope-a-dope technique, Foreman was tired, and in round eight, Ali hit Foreman with a combo that would knock him out. In order to get back to his adversary, Frazier, Ali had to study George Foreman from a different vantage point. He had to study as a loser who had to regain what he had lost. Prior to losing to Frazier, Ali had never had that perspective before in the ring. He would go on to fight Frazier again, and this time using his dance to the fullest. He used his legs and his technical ability, plus a renewed fire, in order to beat Frazier. Now Frazier has lost to Ali and wants to get back. And Ali, coming off of a couple of huge wins, is trash-talking to levels like never before. He feels his invincibility. And now with Frazier licking his wounds, 
and Ali prancing around, all of this would lead to the fight we all know, the Thriller in Manila. This was one of the greatest fights in boxing history. While much is written about the months leading to the fights, the taunts, the flash, the anticipation, I'm thinking about the journey. Ali had never lost a professional fight before Frazier. Frazier knocked Ali into a perspective he had never had. Ali had to tune up his fight game better than he ever had before. And to those who know the boxing game, it was all on display in the killer, which was a chiller in the thriller in Manila. Now, Joe was a power hitter. He wasn't going to do much dancing, but he also wasn't going to do much chasing either. He was technical enough to be efficient, not wasting a lot of energy unnecessarily. On the other hand, Ali wasn't much of a power hitter, but he was a highly technical boxer. He was prone to dancing, shuffling, and doing a lot of legwork, but not in this fight. In this fight, Ali danced when necessary, but mainly stood toe-to-toe with Joe. Ali had to pull on some of his comeback smarts. He had to pull on his technical skill. He even had to pull on the fact that in the previous fight, he realized he could actually beat Joe. And after seeing Foreman beating, he knew that Joe could be beat. After pulling on all these sources, Ali finally beat his ultimate opponent. Sure, Ali fought some more as well as Frazier. It took Frazier pushing Ali to greater heights, heights Ali would have never ascended had he not faced Joe Frazier. It was Frazier that stood in front of Ali's legacy. He was the opposition that Ali had to grow to defeat. Biblically, there's a name that we know that means to oppose or to obstruct. That name is Satan or the Satan, depending on the depths of your study. And I know just a moment ago, I mentioned that an adversary isn't necessarily an enemy. Then I pull out Satan, our ultimate enemy, as an example. Bear with me. For my Bible scholars listening, you're aware that in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Job, and also in the New Testament, particularly in the book of 1 Peter, Satan is pictured more as an adversary and not an enemy. As Peter would describe it, our adversary, the devil, is like a lion seeking whom he will devour. Peter describes him as an adversary, opposition. Allow me to explain the nuance further. Satan accused Job of having counterfeit faith in God and that he could prove it if he had the clearance to test Job. God allows the test. Everything that happened following was a test of Job's relationship with God and his faith in God. From Satan's perspective, 
this is a means to destroy Job. From God's perspective, it is a test to prove the integrity of Job's faith. God uses Satan's antics, life's adverse situations, and the setbacks to push us to prove our faith. Think about proving if a precious metal is actually gold. In the old days, you'd see people take a gold coin and bite it. Gold being very malleable would have an indention. Or they'd put gold ore fragments in a furnace. If it's actually gold, it would remain and shine. If it's not, it would burn. Whether it is put under the pressure of a tooth or heated in a furnace, the item thought to be gold had to be tested in order to see its genuine nature. The testing situations are the adverse conditions that the gold has to endure. That reminds me of the story of the cup. It's a beautiful cup, but in order to appreciate its beauty, you'd have to know its history. It started out as clay resting easy on the shore, occasionally hit by the waves. The potter stops by and picks it up from the surrounding dirt. The clay said to the potter, Why did you have to pick on me? The potter responded, I didn't pick on you. I just picked you out. You're special. You're made of the same things around you, but you respond differently under pressure. The potter then took the clay back to his home. He sits the clay on the counter and he mashes it and mashes it. The clay complained, why are you mashing me? That hurts a little. The potter replied, if I didn't mash you, you would be hard and no one could work with you. I mashed you so that you would be flexible and moldable. Then the potter put the clay on his wheel and began to mold and shape the clay into a cup. The clay liked that. But after he dried, the potter put him in the furnace. The clay screamed, Why did you put me in this hot furnace? It's hot in here. The potter responded, If I didn't put you in the furnace, you'd be brittle and break easily. Then the potter puts a nice coat of glaze on the cup and put him back in the furnace. Not the furnace again, the potter replied. Now you will be able to withstand the heat and the pressures of life, and this glaze will ensure that you will be useful for a long time. The potter had to extract the clay from its place because if he didn't, the clay would end up like the mud around it. The difference between clay and mud is that under the sun, the clay becomes soft and malleable and the mud becomes brittle and crumbles. The potter had to work the clay to keep it malleable and flexible. The potter had to put the clay in the furnace to help temper the clay. Without this process, the clay would look nice, but break under pressure. All of those situations seem adverse to the clay, but they actually help the clay become what the potter wanted. 
Sometimes God allows adverse situations and adversaries in our life for his ultimate purpose for our life. In order to fully develop, we need to be challenged physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But on the other side, we're stronger, better, and greater than we ever would have been without our adversaries. You needed your big brother or sister. You needed that tough class that you had trouble passing. You needed the stronger, faster, better opponents. When you faced your adversaries, you had to grow in order to beat them. I hope you listened to this on the way to work or on the way to the gym or even just while thinking about your next move. Sometimes the adversary is someone else or something else. Sometimes the adversary is you. Thank you for sharing a word with Anthony Walker.